Well, we're, uh, tonight we're considering uh, Philippians uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. And um, I apologize, I'm going to be uh, using the, the English Standard Version. It's, I don't have anything against the NIV, I just don't own one, so uh, I apologize. So I, I have an English Standard Version in front of me, but you, I don't think you'll see much difference at all. Um, but counting the cost. We count the cost in almost every aspect of life, don't we? When you go to, to look at a house, you count the cost. You want to know how much it's going to cost you. You want to know um, what it's going to take to, to move your, your family or yourself into that home. And typically, we're, we're willing to pay more. We're willing for it to cost us more. If we're convinced of the value, we weigh the cost versus the value of something. You want to know sort of the size of your garden or how many rooms you're going to have. Now, we do it in other areas of life. You, you think about going and getting a degree at, at the university. You want to know, uh, or the college or wherever it is, you, you want to know what sort of return you're going to get at the end of this, this process. And so you, you sort of count the cost and you, you try to decide whether or not it's worth it based on the value, what you perceive, perceive to, to gain from this, the value of it. My suspicion is, is that um, many of you would pay more to go skiing in the Swiss Alps than to go ski by the Asda in Aberdeen. Uh, it's, maybe you'll have a good time if you go skiing by the Asda in Aberdeen. They have one of those year-round slopes that sort of one run down. Uh, the reason is, is because you consider a, a, a ski trip to the Alps as something more valuable. And we do it in all of life. And, but rarely do we talk about the cost of discipleship when it comes to the Christian faith. It's not something that's really popular in our culture, is it? And in our world today, we don't want to talk about the cost of discipleship. And my suspicion is, is that one of the reasons that we don't want to talk about the cost is that we have missed something of the value of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we have forgotten something of the glory of God and the value and the beauty of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we, when we consider denying self and taking up our cross and following Him, these, these things that Christ tells us uh, we will have to do in the Christian faith, we need to remember that as the Apostle Paul says, that, that the trials of this life, the suffering that we face in this life for our faith is nothing compared to the glory which is ours in Christ Jesus. And so in this passage, as we're considering, as we're considering that, um, we'll see this, this life worth living and this death worth dying. But before we do, I think we need to put it all in perspective. We need to first see this, this sovereign and kind God. And once we look at this sovereign and kind God in our passage, then we might, by God's grace, and that through those lenses be stirred to live a life worth living and die a death worth dying. And so the first thing we see in this, this text is, is a sovereign and kind God. We see that in verse 19, in verse 21, in verse 24, and verse 27. I think when we come to this text, we're easily deceived. You're reading along in your English Bible, and you've got these big, bold headings. Timothy and Epaphroditus. And so you think, oh, I know what this is about. It's about Timothy and Epaphroditus, and you can just sort of read right on through and say, well, I've got that. I understand that this is about them. But I hate to break it to you, but in the original Greek text, there's no bold heading saying, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I think that, you know, you've heard the expression, the devil is in the details. Well, in this text, if you, if you pay attention, God is in the details of everything that is going on here. 
And so we need to see this, this sovereign and kind God. I, I think I can illustrate it like this. If you've ever been to a child's birthday party, you've got all these four-year-olds together, and supposedly all these four-year-olds are giving gifts to one another. You, you know, it's sort, of, sort of it's this child's four-year-old birthday party, and all of his four-year-old friends are giving him gifts. But, that, but really what is happening is, is that their parents are purchasing those gifts and giving them to their child to give to another and I think that we need to remember that when we're looking at Christian servants, Christian ministers, people gifted to the church, because yes, they're doing great and glorious things. Yes, Timothy and Epaphroditus are commendable men, but behind them, behind these men making these sacrifices and doing these great things is this, the fountain of all goodness, this sovereign and kind God. And I, I want to suggest to you that that's what we need to remember when we approach this passage or any other passage where we're looking at the Bible commending the work of man. In verse 19, you see Paul, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. In verse 24, he says, and I trust in the Lord that short, shortly I myself will come to you. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus. I trust in the Lord. I kind of take that to be it seems to me that he's sort of saying something similar to where James tells us that, that we're to sort of say, not to boast about what we're going to do tomorrow or the next day, but we're to say, if the Lord is willing, I, if the Lord is willing, I will do such and such. Or, or where Paul says in Ephesians that we're to submit to our parents in the Lord, where everything that we're doing is, is under God's control. And so I, I think that that's what's going on in this, when he's saying this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. I, I trust in the Lord that I that shortly I myself will come also. Paul is recognizing here that God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over our hopes and our plans. That, that if God wills, Timothy will be able to go to the Philippians. If God wills, Paul will be able to go himself to the Philippians. And you have to remember that that's, that's crucial when, you're, when you consider where he was. He was in chains. The Apostle Paul at this point was in prison. But things haven't spun out of control, have they? Yeah, he's suffering. He's suffering for his faith. He's suffering for his ministry. But things have not spun out of control. And if it's God's will for him to stay in that prison, then, then the Apostle Paul knows that that's, that's precisely what's going to happen. But he also knows that all of Rome and all of its chains cannot hold him there if it is God's will for him to continue on in the ministry. I hope in the Lord. I, I trust in the Lord. Paul is recognizing here that God is sovereign over everything. And we need to remember that too when we're, when we're in the midst of life, don't we? We need to remember that, that everything that we do and everything that we hope to do and everything that we experience is coming to us through the hands of a loving, sovereign Father. In verse 27, uh, we see, see God's sovereignty over, over a sickness and death. Um, he's talking about Epaphroditus. He, wants, um, he thought it was necessary in verse 25 to send Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. In verse 27, he says, Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but, also, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. He's saying that, that Epaphroditus had become sick. He was almost sick to the point of death, and yet God had mercy upon him. Paul is recognizing here, too, that, that God is sovereign. 
over sickness, over death. You know, with all of our medical advances and all of our technology and even with the lengthening of our life and God's providence, you're still going to die. You're still going to get sick from time to time. And unless the Lord returns before it happens, you will perish. We will all die. These are things that are out of our control. We can't, we can't stop death. Paul is saying to us that God is sovereign over sickness. God is sovereign over death. These great forces that are, that are so much more powerful than us. God is sovereign over, over the, the lump that you might feel in your throat that causes you to surf the internet for hours looking at what it might possibly be. God is sovereign over those symptoms that make you stay up all hours of the night and worrying. God is sovereign over the things that cause you to go to the doctor's office. God is sovereign over losing a child. God is sovereign over losing a loved one. God is sovereign over all things. And that should bring us great comfort. Because when life hits you hard, you can know that God is still seated upon His throne, that God is in control. Paul says that, that he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. God, Paul is recognizing here that, that God is sovereign over sickness. God is sovereign over death. But it's not enough to have an all-powerful God, is it? And that's great. But, but power, it's, it's just not enough, is it? Hitler was powerful. Joseph Stalin was powerful. But in this passage, we see this all-powerful God is also kind, and He's merciful, and He's gentle, that He cares for His people. He is sovereign, but He's also good. In verse 27, Paul says, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. He's talking about God's mercy here to him. God is sovereign over all of these things, and yet he had mercy on Epaphroditus so that Paul might not have sorrow upon sorrow. This God who is, who is all-powerful and all-glorious, sovereign over all things, cares about the good of his people. He knows his people's weakness, though he has none. He knows his people's frailty, though he has none. He knows his people's limits, though he has none. And we can see that even more, more clearly in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and Jesus Christ becoming flesh, can't we? That the, that this, that the God who never slumbers nor sleeps. Is descri he's described as this God who never slumbers and sleeps. And yet, Jesus, when He became flesh, fell asleep in a boat because He was tired during a storm. Well, this God who owns the cattle on a thousand, hill and, on the, on a thousand hills, and yet, and yet when Jesus Christ was on this earth, He had no place to lay His head. And this God who, who has no needs and, and, and needs no one or no thing. And yet Jesus Christ had to pray for daily bread. This, this sovereign God knows who is all-powerful, knows and cares about the weakness of His people. 
He cares for His people. And then back at verse 21, we see this even, even, even more. We see uh, where He's talking about the, the ministry of, of, of Timothy. He says, They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How, a son, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Paul says that, that Timothy is commendable because unlike the rest of the world, Timothy seeks the interest of Christ. And how was that manifested? What does that look like? What does it mean when he was seeking, seeking the interest of Christ? What did that mean? He was seeking the good of Christ's people. Christ's interest is with his people. It was a life of, of service. It was a life of, of giving and sharing the gospel. Christ's interest is with his people. And so when, when Timothy was seeking the interest of Christ, he was giving himself in the ministry and the service of the church, of his people. I think it's, it's popular sometimes to say that if, he, if, if, he become, if you're too heavenly minded, then you'll be of no earthly good. Or some people want to, talk, want to sort of divorce the responsibilities of the church from social concern. But yet I think that we have to remember that if you, if you consider the New Testament and, and if you consider the Bible, you have to realize that, that if you're seeking the interest of Christ, then you will be seeking the good of other people. Because Christ is concerned about His people. You cannot seek the interest of Christ without seeking the good of others. See, Christ left glory. He humbled Himself. He became obedient unto death. And the Apostle Paul says in, in chapter 2, the same chapter we're looking at, he says that He did this for the sake of others. He did this for the sake of sinners like you and me. He counted us as more... He put us before Him. Though He's infinitely more valuable than any one of us, or all, each and every one of us. All of us put together. And He says He did this for others. And though Christ, though Christ has, has become exalted and He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and though Christ hung on the cross crying out, it is finished, my brothers and sisters, we need to remember that Jesus Christ is not finished with you. Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished. But Jesus Christ is not finished with His people. He is not finished with His church. Ephesians, Paul says in Ephesians, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives and He gave gifts to men. And saying He ascended, what does it mean? But that He also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the, all, all the heavens that He might fill all things. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. When you look at Timothy, when you look at Epaphroditus, when you look at the Apostle Paul, when you look at the men striving for the Gospel and the women striving for the Gospel in this world, you have to remember that they're a gift from God. It's not just these people going about doing these great things, though, though they're commendable in themselves, but, but ultimately, it's God gifting His church. Christ cried out, it is finished, but Jesus Christ is not finished with you. And my suspicion is, is that you need to know that from time to time. Because you, you're seeking to live a life of godliness in this fallen and sinful world. And you're seeking to live a life of godliness in this flesh with this fallen and sinful heart. 
And sometimes you probably can begin to wonder if you will ever make progress in the faith. Perhaps you've gotten tired of yelling at your kids. Being ugly to your spouse. Gossiping about your neighbors. Cheating on an exam. Looking at things on the internet you shouldn't be looking at. Not loving others. Being too afraid to share the gospel. Whatever it is. Perhaps you have grown discouraged knowing, feeling like you're never going to make progress because every time you feel like you make just a little bit of, of, of progress in the faith and you get a little bit of victory over, over something you're struggling with, you feel like you're back at square one before you know it. You, you look at where Paul says in, in chapter 12, and, in verse 12, and it says, work out your, your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Work out your fear with with work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And you could, you could sort of come to these, these texts and, and you could say, yeah, I've got the fear and trembling down. Because when I look at my heart, I tremble and I'm afraid because I seem to be making no progress. And I begin to wonder sometimes, am I even a Christian at all? And you can begin to sort of doubt the second part of that. For it is God who is at work within you. I know that your theology is right. And you know that God is at work within you, but sometimes it doesn't feel that way, does it? And you need to be reminded that Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished. But Jesus Christ is not finished with you. He's not finished with His people. And to be quite honest with you, Timothy and Epaphroditus' love for the church doesn't really excite me all that much. I don't want to diminish what they did for the gospel. But honestly, what have they done for you lately? They've been dead for coming on 2,000 years. But what absolutely astounds me is that this sovereign and all-powerful God, this God who Habakkuk describes as a God of pure eyes and to look upon sin, that He would stoop down and that He would think to look at sinners like you and me. And that is what is truly amazing about grace. It is finished, but He is not finished with you. And it's through these lenses that I think that by God's grace we can be stirred to live a life worth living and die a death worth dying. And so so we want to consider now a a life worth living. And we see this in verses uh, 19 through 24. It says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all look, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I, that shortly I myself will come also. It's, it's a life worth living. It's a life lived for others. I think that's the great focus of this, this epistle. Some people say it's the epistle of joy, and there's a lot of joy in it, but I think that the ultimate, the heart of this epistle is putting others before yourself. It's the mind of Christ. Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. And that's what Timothy was doing, but I think that sometimes we object to putting others before ourselves because we're afraid that we'll be treated like servants, right? That we'll be stepped on. That we won't be 
that we have to take care of ourselves because no one else is going to, right? I remember I was riding with uh, Ligon Duncan. He's a friend, with, with D- friend of David, and uh, I was working for him at the time, and I had been treated quite unfairly by someone. And he was, Ligon was trying to explain to me various things, helping me understand where, where sort of the struggles of the individual and why this might have happened. But then at the end, he said something that I don't think I'll ever forget. He said, you know, Nick, we all want to be servants, but none of us want to be treated like one. And what Ligon was telling me was that if you're going to be a servant, you better expect to be treated like one. And I think that that's part of the reason why we don't want to put others before ourselves. It's because we want to look out for ourselves. We're afraid that we're going to be stepped on. But if you want to live a life truly worth living, a life lived for others, a life for the gospel, a life for the glory of Jesus Christ, then you have to be willing to take a risk and be willing to be stepped on. Paul says that he hopes to send Timothy so that he might be cheered by the news that he hears of the Philippians. In verses 21 through uh, 23, he says that he compares Timothy's aspect outlook on life or, or his ministry and, and who he is to, to others. He says they all, they all seek their own interests, but Timothy seeks the interest of Christ. Timothy's service is, is, is set in contrast to the way the rest of mankind lives. And, it's, and that's what's commendable about his service is, 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 is that he sought the interest of Christ, not his own interest. He was, he was putting the interest of Jesus Christ first, which meant that he would serve the church, that he would give himself to the work of the Lord, to, to the work of the gospel. It means that he was a servant of Jesus Christ. But Christ is seated upon his throne, right? How do you serve a, a God who needs nothing, who doesn't need anything? He doesn't get hungry. He doesn't get thirsty. He doesn't have problems. How do you serve Jesus Christ? How can you be a servant of Christ? You serve Christ by serving others. Matthew 25 says when he's, you remember, he's separating the sheep and the goats. The Son of Man is coming in His glory and He's separating the sheep from the goats. And when asked, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or in prison, Jesus replied, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. You serve Christ by serving His people. Because His people do get tired, don't they? And His people do get hungry. And His people do get thirsty. We serve Christ by serving others. And Paul commends Timothy because he was seeking the interest of Christ, which meant he was considering others as more important for himself. More important than himself. And we have to stop and think. We have to ask ourselves, don't we? What are we living for? Whose interests are we seeking? Are we seeking to build our own kingdom? Or are we seeking the interests of Christ? Are we seeking to share in the building of the kingdom of God? Seeking the interests of Christ doesn't mean that you stop being a banker. It doesn't mean that you stop cleaning the floor of, of a factory or, or being a fisherman or, or any other lawful employment, but it, means, but it does transform the way you go about those duties and your everyday life. Seeking the interest of Christ means that you seek to, to share the gospel with others. It seeks, you, you, you seek to, to be a responsible individual in every facet of life. You seek to be a good neighbor, to be a good friend to those around you. Seeking the interest of Christ means to seek 
seeking to love others in everything that you do and to see the glory of God shown forth in this fallen and sinful world. A life that seeks the interest of Christ is a life that is lived in light of eternity. And I think that that, seeking the interest of Christ, it sort of adds perspective to the things we wrestle with, doesn't it? To our decision-making and our, the, the ins and outs of our life. Typically, we think that the very forward-looking person in life is the one who sort of plans towards the end of life, the person who has a 15-year goal or, or the person who has retirement sorted out. That's the person we praise the most often in this world is the person who is the most forward-looking. They're not sort of, they don't sort of have a short view about what they're doing and, and, and what they're seeking. But seeking the interest of Christ means an eternal perspective, doesn't it? And I think that that sort of helps add perspective to everything that we do because if you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ, then maybe making an extra million isn't all that important. Or if you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ, then maybe, maybe living a quiet and perfectly uneventful retirement is not so important. It doesn't answer all your questions, but it does help to add perspective because seeking the interest of Christ is an eternal perspective. But not only do we see this, this sovereign and kind God, this life worth living, we see this, this death worth dying. We see that in verses 25 through 30, a death worth dying. There was this Muslim, uh, lady, a lady from a Muslim country who went to study in the United States. And during her time there, she was this young lady was converted to Christianity and was baptized, which is a major no-no. She returned to her country, and she was detained as she entered the country. She was asked a lot of questions about what took place in the States, and then uh, she was let go because her father was sort of a man of influence. Well, when she got home, her uncle was waiting for her, her father's brother. And he began to sort of interrogate her about what had happened, about her baptism, about her time in the United States. And as he asked her questions, he got angry and more angry. And he began to beat her. And at one point, as she was lying on the ground, he grabs a chair to finish her off. And at the last moment, her father walks in and restrains the uncle. Well, she returns to the States, and she was studying New Testament Greek so she could translate the New Testament into her native language. And a minister there was asked, asked her, he said, so what were you thinking as your uncle was holding this chair over your head about to, about to finish you off? And she said, the only thing I could keep thinking was that this man has a God he would kill for, but I have a Savior that I would die for. It doesn't make much sense to praise what Timothy had done. I mean, Epaphroditus here had done, risked his life for the gospel, if it wasn't worth something. And you've got to remember, this is Paul talking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's not just sort of Paul's thoughts on the matter. This is the Bible commending this sacrifice. In verses 28 through through 30, Paul says that, that he is eager to send Epaphroditus to them and that they are to receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor and, and to honor men like Epaphroditus since he nearly died for the work of, gospel, uh, work of the gospel. Uh, Paul sees something commendable in, in the life of Epaphroditus and his near-death experience. But what is interesting is, is that if you look at the text, what happened? He got sick. 
and got sick and almost died. We typically think of risking your life for the gospel as involving prison or uh, cannibals with spears or something uh, very romantic like that, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's not romantic. But, <laughs> but sort of this idea of, of, of suffering for the gospel. But it appears Timothy, I mean, Epaphroditus probably just got an ordinary bug. He was just sick. Maybe Epaphroditus wouldn't have gotten sick had he stayed in the comfort of his home. Maybe Epaphroditus uh, wouldn't have risked his life so much if he would have just stayed home and not gone on this journey to, to, to serve the Apostle Paul, to, to go for the work of Christ. But Paul doesn't say Epaphroditus should have cared for himself better, which is what I think we would have said, right? Oh, he went out on this journey and he got sick. He should have stayed home. It was too cold. It was the winter. I, I don't know here, but I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, we would come up with all of these reasons. Or I remember in seminary, you'd hear it so, several times that, that Calvin just worked too hard and he just burned himself out. Or, or, or you hear it about certain missionaries that they, they, they died because they didn't have, there weren't enough forward thinking or they, they suffered too, too, so much because they didn't, they didn't think about it enough. They went to this really hostile area. But we need to remember that sometimes doing the right thing doesn't always make sense, does it? Doing the right thing doesn't always make sense. Of course, we're not supposed to just go crazy and suspend all judgment and just blindly enter into things. But my suspicion is, is that that is not our struggle. I mean, when was the last time you went absolutely bonkers for Christ and you just did something outrageously by faith? That's probably not your struggle. Now, our problem is is that we are way too good at justifying living a simple and quiet and easy life. Paul here is commending Epaphroditus for risking his health, his life, for the work of Christ. He says that they're to honor such men For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. You see, it's commendable because this man was willing to die for something that truly matters. I'm not telling you to go be a Timothy. I'm not telling you to go be an Epaphroditus. The Bible here, though, is telling us something about a life worth living and a death worth dying, that we're to live lives counting others as more important than ourselves. We're to sort of live in such a way that, that when our life is spent and it is time to go to glory, that we might have used it for something that was good and profitable for the kingdom of God and for the sake of others. You see, you only get one life to live. And you only get one death to die, right? How are you going to spend it? The world will offer you countless things that you you can give your life to. But absolutely nothing compares to the glory of living and if God is willing, dying for the glory of Jesus Christ and for the good of His people. Yes, the the cost of discipleship can be great, but Paul says that the trials that we face in this life are absolutely nothing compared to the glory which is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, such a statement is not meant to say that 
the suffering is not great in this life. It's not meant to make light of suffering in this life. You can turn on wherever you get your news, the internet or your newspaper or the television, and you can see countless countless things of awful suffering in this life, of, of, of children abusing children, children killing children, parents abusing children, step, uh, mother-in-laws uh, killing children, or, or elderly people being neglected and beaten, or, or genocide, or rape, or all of these things that are going on in our world. I mean, suffering in this life sometimes can be like hell on earth. And Paul says that you, you can think about those great sufferings. And you can learn something about the weight of the glory which is ours in Christ Jesus. The weight of what Christ has won through his death and through his life on our behalf. That those trials that which are so painful and awful are nothing compared to the glory which is ours in Christ Jesus. But you can give all your possessions away and you can live a life for others. And you can do all these great things. And at the end of the day, it won't save you if you're not resting and trusting in Christ alone. You'll never get into heaven with that. It's simply not enough. But if you are resting and trusting in Jesus Christ alone, as He has given to you, offered to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then by God's grace, you are set free to strive each and every day through the power of the Holy Spirit within you to strive each and every day to live a life worth living. And when the time comes, be granted grace to die a death worth dying. Because my friends, there is hope in your battle against sin. Because it is finished. But Jesus Christ is not finished with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your gospel. We thank you for the truth of it. And we pray that that we would walk away from here knowing something of the sheer majesty of your greatness and glory. And that that might be our impetus to strive for holiness in this world. We pray that you would forgive us where we fall short and we pray that your spirit would transform us in every way. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen.